Good evening, all. Great to be together tonight. See a lot of you with uh, white name tags on. I think I saw a lot of you today during this time, so that's great to share with you. Well, I want to talk with you tonight about the elephant in the room of the American church. Uh, and I'm talking about Republicans, okay? Uh, so the elephant in the room uh, is obviously a common psychological, metaphorical expression that we've used today to address a problem or to overlook a problem. So we oftentimes use this in the context of a family where there's this kind of recognized patient that we all know is a problem, but we want it to go away, so we just let it, let it be. And that... The elephant in the room in the American church is really contained in the, my title of this message. Can you be a Christian without being a disciple? And of course, we know that the mission of the church that Jesus gave to all of us was to go and make disciples of all nations, to focus on discipleship and to keep that as a, a major emphasis uh, in our ministry. But there seems to be some confusion about what we mean by disciple. And many people have concluded that you can be a Christian without being a disciple. So how did that possibly uh, come about? Well, let me give you an illustration of this. Following a sermon one morning at the church, uh, apparently the pastor had given a barn-burning sermon on what it means to be a disciple, and so a woman approached him after worship on this particular Sunday, and she said, Pastor, I just want to be a Christian. I don't want to be a disciple. I like my life the way it is. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and I will be with him when I die. Why do I have to be a disciple? Now apparently this woman, could have just as easily been a man, uh, thought this was a multiple choice exam. Disciple? Christian? Well, I'll choose Christian. What was her definition of a Christian? Well, she believed that Jesus died for her sins, that she would be with him when she died. And so with that definition of what a Christian was, she saw no reason why she had to be a disciple. Well, why doesn't she want to be a disciple? Well, whatever she thinks a disciple is, and it's not really clear in this statement, uh, she knew it would disturb her way of life. She says, I like my life the way it is. So she knew she might have to change something if she was to be a disciple. Maybe it was the Africa thing, you know, that that's where God would send her. And so she concludes by saying, almost you know, dismissively, why do I have to be a disciple? She saw no necessary connection between being a Christian and being a disciple. And I would say there are millions like that in the American church today. Well, how did she come to the conclusion that she could be a Christian without being a disciple? And I would submit that her conclusion is absolutely consistent with the terms in which we have been preaching the gospel. In other words, she drew this conclusion not in spite of the gospel we've been preaching, but precisely because of the gospel we've been preaching. And I think we have been preaching what I call the transactional gospel. We sort of communicate the gospel in accounting terms today. And it goes something like this. Because of our sin, an eternal debt has been registered to our account that we cannot possibly pay off ourselves. But thanks be to God, God has sent Jesus to pay the debt for our sin on the cross. And because of his resurrection, we know that he has paid that debt. And now here's the transaction. If we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then to his, his credit is transferred to our account and he plots out our debt. So we have a debt, we can't pay. Jesus has paid the debt, the debt is blotted out. We are handed a receipt that says, paid in full. You're good to go. 
So is it any wonder that maybe she had come to the conclusion that she did not have to be a disciple, which meant kind of aligning her life uh, with Jesus in her life? Well, you might say, well, that sounds pretty good to me. Isn't that the gospel? John Altberg, who's once the pastor of Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, this is now called Menlo Church since it's an eco-church, uh, says that we've been preaching the minimum entrance requirements to get into the kingdom when we die. You know, this is what gets you barely in uh, to the kingdom. Dallas Willard dubbed this gospel that we preach the barcode Christianity. You know, if we could just get that salvation barcode, we can get rung up by that great scanner in the sky, and we're, we've got it. We've got it made. And what is the summary of, of this gospel? Well, God loves you. You messed up. Jesus died for you. Accept Jesus into your heart. That's kind of what we preach. Now, you know, I've given a bit of a caricature here, admittedly, uh, this. I'm sure there are obviously many, many people who have very genuine transformations in their life. But when we ask the decision question, when somebody gives their life to Christ, it goes something like this. Will you receive Jesus Christ right now and trust him alone for forgiveness of sins and eternal life? The gospel has been reduced to a gift that we receive. I call this getting in on the benefits plan. That's what the gospel has become. It's not a matter of transference of our life. It's not a matter of giving our life over to Jesus to follow him. It's a matter of receiving a gift, and that's pretty much it. So the question I ask is, is this the gospel that Jesus preached? Was that his gospel? Well, I want us to turn our attention to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Because I think this is the place where we have given succinctly the message that Jesus proclaimed as what the gospel is. I mean, Mark himself labels it as that. You can't miss it. He says in verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Proclaiming the good news of God. That's the gospel. And what is that gospel? The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Four points. We'll take a look at those in a moment. But let me pause on that good news side of things. Don't we all want good news in our life? My wife, I think, had one of the most difficult professions that anybody could have. She was an elementary school principal. Did that for 16 years. She had to love the kids, and what she did, that was easy. She had to sort of mollify the teachers and the parents <laughs> of the school. And every day was an exhausting day for her. She left long before 7 o'clock in the morning. I never knew exactly what time she was going to get home in the evening. But when she got home in the evening, she had one requirement, that she had a chance to take a nap on the couch before dinner. And I was under strict restrictions <laughs> to never interrupt that nap. Unless I had good news. So every once in a while, I would come home, I'd sigh, see her asleep on the couch, I would slide up next to her, I'd whisper in her ear, Honey, I've got some good news. <laughs> and i watch her eyes slowly open and turn her head to me, wanting to know what that good news was. We're eager to hear good news, aren't we? Anybody that says, i got some good news, you're going to get our attention. Well, what's this good news that Jesus proclaimed? Four things. The time has come or fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand or near. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news. So let's take a look at each one of those 
phrases. The time has come or fulfilled. Eugene Peterson in his translation of the message simply says, time's up. I like that. Uh, and I think it conjures up an image of a pregnant woman who's closing in on her nine-month waiting period. The culmination begins with the birth pangs, and then the birth pangs come five minutes apart, and she says to her husband, it's time. <laughs> Call the doctor. Let's go. The hour has arrived. That's kind of the image, I think, that, that Jesus is in. Jesus has been that long-for Messiah for all these eons. And now Jesus is saying of himself, I'm it. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And there's two Greek words here uh, for time. There's the word chronos, from which we get time on the clock, chronology. And, uh, you know, it's what time is it now? 7.22, according to my time. 7.23 in a moment. Uh, that's just time on the clock. But the word that Jesus uses here is the word kairos, and I'm sure many of you have heard this distinction. It has to do with opportunity time. Time pregnant with meaning. Because of what happened in this moment, everything will be different from here on out, is what, what Jesus is saying. Now, we have a, a date in our calendar that defines the birth of our nation on July the 4th. We have that as Independence Day. That's a significant Kairos moment for this country. Well, what's July 5th? Well, if it's your birthday, it means something. If it's your anniversary, it means something. But otherwise, it's another day on the calendar. Jesus is saying, this day is the most important day. Well, what's so earth-shattering, Jesus? Well, it's because the kingdom of God is at hand or near. Now, we don't preach about the kingdom of God that much in our ministries. It was the theme of Jesus' ministry. It was the very beginning of his ministry. He spoke about it in Acts chapter 1 when he's getting ready to ascend to his father and get the last message that he gave to his disciples. He talked to them about the kingdom of God. 122 times in between, there is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that was on the lips of Jesus. And when you frame the gospel in kingdom terms, it's very different than the transactional gospel that I've just been talking about because it has to do with ultimate loyalty. Now, when the people heard Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, what would have conjured up in their minds? What would they start thinking about? Well, the Messiah has come. The one who's going to make all things new. That's what they were waiting for. The Hebrew people introduced a view of time that was very different than any other view of time. See, up to that point, everything was a cyclical view of time. Summer, fall, winter, spring. Summer, fall, winter, spring. Things just repeated itself over and over again. Time was going nowhere. But the Hebrew people... The people of God introduced a time that had a destination and a direction. And it was divided in between this age and the age to come. This age was the age torn apart by sin, torn asunder by the brokenness of humanity. And particularly in, in Israel's day, because of the boot of Roman, Rome was on their, on their neck. But the age to come was the age of the Messianic age. When one like David would come and restore all things uh, to Israel. And what would they have heard Jesus saying with the age to come? Well, the Messianic age was here. That's what the expectation was that was raised in them. All sin would be forgiven. The lion would lie down with the lamb. Swords would be beaten into plowshares. We will make no more, no more. The glory days of David will be restored to Israel. That Messianic age has arrived. And they would have been partially right. 
King Jesus was among them. But he was bringing a very different kind of kingdom than what they were hoping for and expecting. Because this king wielded his power in a very different way than the mighty warrior that was going to take over Israel. The kingdoms of men have symbols of power like palaces and armies. Yet King Jesus has nowhere to lay his head. Human kings rule over their realm on thrones while King Jesus is lifted up on a cross. So a very different kind of kingdom than that we're anticipating and expecting. Jesus came to set up what we would call a contrast society. The kingdom of light coming alongside and pressing back the kingdom of darkness. That he would set up a kingdom of love and grace against this world that was torn asunder by, by, by evil and power and corruption. And Paul says that he came to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We transfer kingdoms when we come to respond to Christ. We transfer loyalties. We transfer authority. Ultimately, we put our life under the authority of Jesus. We transfer control of who we are to him. It's not just simply getting the gift. Taking, taking it and saying, gee, everything's taken care of. We now are under new management in the kingdom of God. Let me give you a kind of just a personal illustration of this or an illustration of what I observed. My wife and I are in a Sunday night small group. We enjoy the couples in that group. And one night, Phil in the group uh, shared with us that uh, he had made a major change in his life. He had decided not to drink a glass of wine at the end of the day. Now, this is not about whether it's right or wrong to drink wine. I enjoy a little bit of that myself. But he said he noticed his wife getting very upset with him when he would drink a glass or two of wine at the end of the day. Now, they had had Teresa's sister living with them who was a recovering alcoholic who had almost killed herself through alcoholism. And I think Therese was looking in with Phil and saying, is this going to happen to you too? And Phil noticed the agitation in his wife. So he decided to have a conversation with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit said to Phil, she's afraid. Well, then I better not continue to make her afraid. I will just stop doing that. Because the Spirit prompted me. And at that point, he shared it with us. It had been three months since he had made that decision. I just had a conversation with him the other day, and it's been well over a year since he made that decision. Because the Spirit said, do it. And he did it. And he said, haven't missed it. Because I wanted to honor my wife and her fears. And the Spirit said to do that. So when you're in the kingdom, you do what the king says to do. That's a part of what the gospel is. Well, how do you get into the kingdom? What's the way in? Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here comes the kingdom of God. Repent and believe the good news. It's as if Jesus stands in the road in front of us and says, don't go any further. You keep going any further, you're in danger. Stop right there, turn around, go a different direction. This is a harsh word. It is meant to be a harsh word. It's meant to signal the, the difficulties that are ahead, the change that is necessary. Really, the word repent means rethink your thinking. You've been thinking in the wrong direction. That thinking will lead you in a way of self-destruction. Change your mindset. Change the way you're looking at things. 
change your ways of thinking, habit patterns, goals, ambitions, make a U-turn in life. One of the things that I, I get to do each week, and I truly get to do it, it's a joy for me, is to go to Soledad Prison every Wednesday. I've been doing this for a little over five years now, and ministering in a local prison, about a 45 minute drive from my house. I tell the men when I go there, I come to prison because I see Jesus here, more clearly than anyone else, because I see transformed people. So let me tell you about a couple of those transformed people, those people who have made a U-turn in life. David was a skinhead, a white supremacist. If you meet him today, you would see on his left hand, written across his knuckles, H-A-T-E, hate. If you meet him today, you would say, this is a joyful follower of Christ who loves all colors of the brethren that are there. And he said to me, you know, I wish I could get rid of these tattoos on my body that goes up to his neck. But on the other hand, he said, you know, every day it reminds me of the life that I've been saved from. That's transformation. That's change. Let me tell you about Mark. Mark uh, was a human trafficker. He sold women into sexual slavery. He would talk about how vile he once was. If you were to meet Mark today, you'd say he was one of the gentlest people that you've ever met. I looked at him and I said to myself, no, you never did that. I can't imagine the person I know now ever did what you said you did. That's repentance. That's transformation. Uh, that's change. So to be in the kingdom is to make a radical change. One of the prayers I pray almost every day comes from Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. The true Christian nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. Repentance is a way of life. It's something that we constantly go back to. Always, though, in the context, and this is the fourth point here, in the context of the good news. And what's that good news? That when we walk through the door of repentance, we dwell in a land of lavish grace. Yeah, there's that song even that says the, the wrong that seems so off, so strong, but the good news is we've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are the adopted sons and daughters of God. That relationship will never be broken. Uh, the father says to us the same thing that the father said to his own son. You are my son. You are my daughter. Marked and chosen by my love. The, the pride and delight of my life. And that's the way he looks at us. And we look at even our own sin and dealing with that in the context of a relationship that will never be broken. Will never be snatched out of his hand. Once we've, Jesus has held us with his grip, he will never let go. No matter what we discover about ourselves. Because we are now in that land of lavish grace. So this is the good news of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. So let me go back to my original question. Can you be a Christian without being a disciple? In light of Jesus' gospel, doesn't that sound like a silly question? How could you not transfer the authority of your life to him to be the follower of his, 
because that's what it's all about. The word Christian is used just three times in the New Testament. Did you realize that? The word disciple is used 268 times. The New Testament is a book about discipleship. Not about just having your standing as right before God because you received a gift. Let me see if I can bring this home to where we live. How do we live as disciples of Jesus? Well, I think we follow Jesus' model. That's a good place to begin. We were examining today, as a part of our workshop today, that Jesus focused in on 12 and invested his life in them. There was a relational process. That he walked with them and engaged with them and shaped them in that process. Within those 12, we know we also had three. Peter, James, and John. Uh, they were with him at very specific times, and apparently they were the part of that inner circle that Jesus influenced our all. We know more about Peter, James, and John than we do most of the rest of the disciples, don't we? Uh, in terms of what they left behind uh, with us. And we try to translate that Jesus investment in a few and then into what we call microgroups. Small groups of three or four people that journey together to share their life together. If we're serious about discipleship, we will gather with other disciples on a regular basis, preferably weekly. We will share our lives around God's Word. We will talk with each other how we are living this out in our life day to day in all the different dimensions of our life because these are the places from which we are sent. These are the base communities from which we go. And that's where the transformation takes place. That's where the Holy Spirit, through life sharpening iron, sharpening iron, life sharpening life, as we then grow in our life in Him. And these microgroups, we get to be cheerleaders for each other. We're on each other's side. We get to share life's difficulties together. I know I've, I've had gone through my bouts of prostate cancer, and boy, am I glad that I had a discipleship group that supported me uh, through that time. We have chances to, to listen deeply to each other's life and hear God's call upon each other. Say, I see this gift in you. I see that passion in you. This is what God has called you to be and do. We need these kind of groups. We even can get to the point where we can be, yes, confessional with each other. Trusting each other enough when we say, you know, I've got this dark side. I've got this side of me that I hide from others. Uh, I'm not proud of it. I was just with a, a man two days ago who had, had confessed to me and some others a 40-year bout of pornography. Uh, he had received an email saying that somebody was going to expose him. He needed to tell us. Weeping, doing that. And we had a chance to be God's loving arms around him and express the good news of the gospel to him that there's no condemnation in Christ and there's not going to be no condemnation in us uh, for you. So the liberation that can come in those moments. And not only do we have a place where we're getting nurtured in our faith, but then we're being equipped to disciple others as well. Disciples not only grow in their own maturity in Christ, but they then are equipped to invest in other people's lives. We're not end users. <laughs> we are ones that are used to invest in, in, in invest in others as well. So the church exists for no other purpose than to make followers of Jesus who make followers of Jesus. I think that's Jesus' gospel. So let me conclude with a, a story. Let me take you back to the 1988 Olympic Games. 
Seoul, Korea. The 4x100 relay race was one of the top events of that year. The American relay team was the class of field, there was no doubt about it. In fact, there was no doubt as to who was going to win that race. It was just a matter of whether the American team would break the world record that day. So the race began, and uh, you know, crowds were there in great anticipation. You see the world record clock out in the field because they were tracking how fast they were, whether they were running ahead of the clock or not. First runner takes off and immediately creates a gap between him and the rest of the field, makes a smooth handoff to the second runner. Off the second runner goes, now there's even a greater gap between the American team and everybody else. The crowd's getting louder and the cheers are going up and they see that they're ahead of the world record pace. The third, second runner passes the third runner. Again, a smooth pass and handoff. And again, the gap is increased and the crowd gets louder and louder. And then the fourth, to the, on to the fourth runner, the third runner hands it off and there's obviously some confusion taking place, some stumbling going on. And all of a sudden, there is the baton don't drop the baton pass it on let's pray Father God we come before you you've handed us a baton you've put your life in us You've asked us to put our lives up against and over and with others as well. To walk alongside and to be with others and help others come to faith in you as well as walk them into deeper life and obedience. We thank you for these micro groups that can do this kind of thing and make that happen. And we pray that all of us would have that opportunity to be used of you to help others grow in the faith and become ones that are vehicles of your loving grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.